2: This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to Southampton sacking their manager Nathan Jones after just 95 days in charge. We'll talk about a narrowing title race after Arsenal dropped points to Brentford and Manchester City beat Aston Villa. But big VAR decisions cost Arsenal and Brighton as well in their game against Crystal Palace. We will, though, look ahead to that big match between Arsenal and Manchester City in the Premier League on Wednesday, as well as reacting to some of the big storylines from the weekend, including Chelsea dropping more points against West Ham United, Spurs given a hiding by Leicester City, Bournemouth getting a vital point against Newcastle United, a big win for Manchester United and Fulham as well. This is the game. Hello, welcome back to the game. I am Hugh Wozencroft alongside Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, and Alison Rudd to discuss another busy weekend of Premier League football. But we start with a managerial sack in. Nathan Jones, gone from Southampton after just 95 days in charge. Lasted longer than Liz Truss. Congratulations. Former Luton Town boss leaving bottom of the table after their 2-1 loss to 10-man Wolves. He becomes Southampton's shortest serving boss in the Premier League era. He lost nine of 14 matches, including eight defeats in nine Premier League games and four straight defeats at St. Mary's. He's the eighth Premier League manager to be sacked this season. Um, it's a weird one. It's one that it was, it was a hard one to predict because obviously, well, it was a hard one to predict in so much that you, you kind of it happens so rarely that a manager has gone so early that you think, oh, you know, they've made a big decision Southampton. They brought in a manager from the championship. They, they obviously knew he was going to need a bit of time. But then, obviously, during the course of this short period, you know, his rhetoric, the view of the fans, you know, last week's fan forum, you know, the pressure was just ramping up and ramping up. And you think, right, a fellow relegation candidate at home, he has to get a result. And then the result goes, or the, the game goes in such a way that means you almost have to sack him. 1 0 up against 10 men, still manages to lose a game at home. And you've actually got people now reacting to it, calling it one of the worst managerial appointments in the Premier League era. And you kind of wonder, is that fair or unfair? Because there were a lot of issues at Southampton and they weren't very good before he took over. So how much credit, if you like, does he get for how bad they are?
0: When he took over, Southampton were a team that uh, needed investment and had a very championship look about them. A lot of young players who... Might come good, but too many in the same team and in an unfamiliar position of looking like they were in real relegation trouble. So the club took the view. You get a manager who suits the player profile, i.e. one who isn't a Premier League manager, because he would be used to working with players of a slightly lower calibre or at least untested. And the idea was if he can work wonders with Luton, well, he can work wonders with a, a young squad who are struggling at Southampton. I don't think they realise, because you don't read day in, day out, what the manager of Luton says to the media. They didn't realise what sort of persona he would have. And I was at the game at Brentford. You're saying it's slightly surprising that he's gone, perhaps. I was surprised it wasn't sacked on the spot then because his post-match words were utterly bizarre. He was trying to give himself an excuse whilst also digging a hole for himself and didn't seem clear on what he needed to do so and and also at that game the the uh, away fans were calling for him to be sacked and cheering and you could just look at the players um James Ward Prowse it's got I think it's got a slightly floppy fringe these days anyway he sort of wipes <laughs> wipes it he wipes it he wipes it from his wipes it from his face and he looks perplexed and he's 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 you know clearly their best player and someone i think we admire a lot on this podcast actually and he's he's doing he's doing his very best but he he just looks like i i i don't see a way out of this you can tell you can just tell he isn't buying into whatever it is he's being told to do although you know probably the best thing that nathan jones did do was give him a more advanced role on the pitch which worked and it meant he's scored quite a few goals and been uh, involved in some but it's just it's just someone who ultimately you don't appoint someone you appoint someone because they've got what you think are the skill set for your players but he he looked out of his depth you can't apply Luton rules to the Premier League because it's just different with different expectation pressure different opposition and then he comes out and says oh I've been compromising the whole time I know why I was appointed and I haven't been doing what I was appointed to do. That is a resignation letter. So I'm surprised he got one more chance. And it's almost funny how badly he took that last chance.
2: Gregor, worst managerial uh, appointment?
3: No, I, I've, I have sympathy for him. I feel he's wrong man, wrong place, wrong time. Uh, he's a good manager. There's no question about that. Mm. Uh, and people will point back to his difficulties at Stoke. But he's the two jobs he's taken away from Luton... I've had some serious issues yeah. going on around it, and Southampton are no different. They, we know about, was we, discussed it since since pre season when we looked at their recruitment and thought this is exciting but it's risky, and the fans. On top of that, the fans never wanted them in the first place. Yet uh, there was a kind of this whole narrative that developed that because he had time during the World Cup to work on the team and they had such a bad, you know, start after the World Cup uh, break that he he was clueless. And that he changed formation, he was clueless. You know, at least this whole kind of narrative developed that I think Southampton got some serious issues and some serious. Like they've they've improved in in January with some some yeah. recruitment, but they some of their defending has been absolutely shambolic. Like the the for the for Will's winner, yeah, two players running hit, almost like banging heads into each other. It was like He should have been playing clown music over it. It was shambolic. You know, he can't do anything about that. Undoubtedly, he's not helped himself. Like. He didn't have to tell his gritty dragging himself up from the bootstrap story for the fourteenth time. You know, the first time would we have been okay. Somebody needed to tell him to shut up three or four weeks ago. Pull him to one side and say, Nathan, I know this is you, I know this is like mm. you're keen to, to say that you've you've not been handed this this job with him. you know, he's not, not been bothered with a silver spoon in his mouth, that kind of thing. But we don't need to hear it anymore. And if somebody did, then it's more fool him. So we we won't know that. But he's done himself no favors because the whole kind of PR. We speak about this all the time, don't we? It's a, it's part of the job of a manager now. Unless you're a genius like Pep Guardiola or someone who doesn't play the game in the media really at all, you need to project something. And what he projected was someone who was spiky, who like antagonistic, yeah, who was actually pissed off with the fans. And you you can you can forgive him for being pissed off with the fans because they booed him after two games or something. So. Anyway, he, he he kind of dug a hole for himself with every passing week and ultimately it was past the point of no return I think probably it was the right decision.
0: Your days are numbered when in a press conference you have to say no disrespect to Welsh women.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is the power of Welsh women these days. Got him sacked in the end unbelievable. Yeah, I mean I was going to ask if the players deserve criticism here but I might as well throw in the club and their responsibility as well because Greg has touched on it there. The recruitment did not set Southampton up for a stellar season in the Premier League. That is absolutely for sure. But but obviously, the players, I mean, the last two games, the quality of the, the defending, you can say the manager has given them a poor structure, if you like. But actually, I'd say they're individual errors. I mean, again, I said it on the previous podcast, at this level, I mean, when I saw the two players run into one another, I thought, I thought he was destined for the sack. I mean, come on. How many times you can see the goal like that? Jan Bednarek. Has ever an own goal summed up a club situation? <laughs> and you, you know, and it, it
1: does, in line with what you're teeing up here as a conversation in terms of the club and the signings. You know, Greg has talked about them signing lots of young, talented players before. And in lots of respects, Nathan Jones was the right manager for that. A manager who's known for kind of getting a lot out of very little and maybe bringing players on. And in lots of ways, it's exactly like that Jan Bednarek own goal. It's well-intentioned. He gets himself... He does the right things. Ultimately, it's a catastrophic error. And that and that's what this proved to be. I, with my Football League fan hat on, I really, really want to be in Camp, Camp Robertson on this uh, and say I kind of feel sorry for him. But I'm ultimately Team Rudd because we discussed it so long ago. Nathan Jones has shot himself in the foot so many times with what he said in terms of his his words in the press, his words about the fans. When you leave a club in such a short space of time we should be talking about Southampton and what a disastrous decision it was why have you bought all these young players and then made wrong managerial moves but the fact you've got fans calling for the manager to go if we contrast it to say Everton where a manager with seemingly limited coaching ability in the form of Frank Lampard is is being sacked by the club and the fans are going oh, I didn't want him to go didn't want him to go sack the board You and know, I, I know there's more chaos slightly off the pitch at Everton than there is Southampton but it's a similar point where they're delighted that Jones has gone after such shut, and there's no sympathy for him whatsoever. I think that contrast tells you a lot.
3: I mean, did you see the picture of the, the kid with his dad? Yeah, embarrassing. Holding the giant P45 that yeah. they tried to give him. Some of the Southampton fans have been rancid. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, it, his face didn't fit. They didn't want him there in the first place, but like give him a little bit of a chance. Like try not to make it too toxic for him to have no chance. That's what they've done. So like I think Southampton look there are reasons bigger reasons why Southampton's fans are upset and we've discussed them many many times but to be so kind of explicit and and pointed towards one man, when it's not the fault of one man. Mm. The, the position Southampton are in is not the fault of Nathan Jones. Well, it, this... Clearly he's not helped it, but he's not yeah. put them there in the first place. Yeah. So I think some of the some of the Southampton fans have, have, should look back on this with
2: uh, some serious regret. Yeah, I think it is one of those positions, a bit like Everton earlier on this season, where the club is sacking the manager and essentially hoping that it will cover for their own mistakes. Because now you, you you look forward and you think that they may be destined for relegation Southampton because who's getting a tune out of this squad of players? Ralph Hazenhittel is a manager that everyone rated and thought, you know, okay, we had a couple of nine nils, but let's be honest, kept Southampton in the Premier League and had been spoken about for bigger jobs. And he got sacked and Nathan Jones, up and coming. I think those of us who watched the EFL thought he was a very, very good manager. OK, he, he clearly needs to learn something about the PR of the Premier League. But now you're looking at it and you think, well, who's going to turn this Southampton squad around by the end of the season? And I don't know if there's a manager that would. Well, as, as the famous chant does not go, there's only one
1: Sean Dyche and he's already a gold club. So <laughs> the, all these other clubs are looking around going, well, what, what's our alternative here? You know, we're reporting this morning Jesse Marsh could be could be in line for moving from Leeds to Southampton quite quickly. Might not be a terrible move in terms of a manager who can kind of galvanize and get a bit of intensity going. <laughs> He's <suppose> probably
3: he, well.
1: <laughs> does he play the PR game particularly well? No, he doesn't exactly. But this is what I mean. There's no, there's no obvious choice. Sorry, Alison, I jumped in with my gag there. Sorry. That was a very good. Game. Thank, thank you very much.
0: <laughs> no, well, I think talking about who takes responsibility here, Hassan It was an open secret in Southampton that he was going to get sacked, and he conducted himself with such. Dignity, and he does have a sort of personality and an aura about him. He, he knew he was going to get the boot. kept going. The results weren't great, but I think if if you were a fan and he was the representative of your team on the world stage, you you really couldn't have faulted him. And what's what is baffling is that they let him limp along, and it's sort of rude, isn't it, to do that? So for everyone to know you you're going to get the boot, but. He limped along did his best finally does get the sack and you think well w- were they just allowing him to limp along because they had some great plan up their sleeves some manager they were just fine-tuning the details because they couldn't bring him in too soon this is why it went wrong and then they bring in nathan jones and everyone's what what you got rid of ralph and undermined him for weeks and weeks for that so in terms of walking into a club it wasn't the red carpet treatment for Nathan Jones, and you could argue he was destined to struggle. I think that's what's annoying about about the organisation. Do they even understand football? Because that is a weird way to conduct yourself. Overall, I think.
3: Uh, I just think that we've, we've said this before. They, they, I think they've admitted really that they let that they let that limp on too long. But there was a lot of good feeling towards Ra- Ralph Hasson, mm. particularly from Martin Simmons, I think, and. The new owners didn't want to come in and completely rip it up. They thought that, they were, you know, they wanted to give him a chance, an opportunity. But they but were
0: briefing against him.
3: Towards the end. But I think they, they gave the probably the mistake was in the summer. They could have made the change in the summer. and Like a clean slate. But as I say, there was a lot of, well, I think there was a lot of warm feeling towards him, Certainly from the hierarchy. But I think some of that was starting to fray among the squad and relationships with the players. So undoubtedly they will look back at their first year in a bit, uh, Sport Republic, and think we've made some serious errors here and it could ultimately cost them their Premier League status.
2: Something happened in this game that we have to touch on. We'll come to VAR a little bit later on, but it is to do with the officiating. The second yellow card for Mario Lamina is a thing of beauty. If (laughs) If there is a yellow card that could possibly be seen as a thing of beauty, this was it. Now, fans are outraged. They're they're disgusted by the fact that Lamino Lamina was given a yellow card. What did he do? Well, Gregor, let me tell you. No, I'm you amazed. I'm completely in agreement. With oh, I see. I see. Good, good, it. He runs in from about twenty yards away good. to complain that he hasn't been given a free kick a little bit earlier on. Unnecessary. Too many players do it now. Uh, listen, Arsenal fans screaming at me now. We're the only club that gets charged with our players having to go at the ref. Everyone does it. Blah blah blah. Well, everyone wouldn't do it if there were more yellow cards. And there should be more yellow cards. A referee is just there to try and do their job, in all honesty. Some of them are terrible, but ultimately you can't run in screaming at them. And I don't think Lamina was o- overly aggressive, but it's the distance that he comes from and the unnecessary nature of it, which means it is a deserved yellow card, in my opinion. Just before we move on, I'm just going to check with Goody Two-Shoes over here that you never did
1: that when you were playing. Never ran to a referee. It's pointless.
3: What, what do, you, Fair enough.
2: What do you, oh, uh, I'm just
3: checking. There are plenty of things you can influence the referee's control over a game, and you can do that without running thirty yards. You yeah. can share with them. You can give them a little bit yeah. here and there. Never ever did that. And if actually, if I'm if I'm in charge of PGML uh, PGMO, what's it called? PGMOl PGM got there. Yeah. If I'm in charge of PGML, <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> if I'm in charge of PGMOl, my first uh, rule change on day one is that no player other than the captain. Can speak to the referee. I'd go that far. Like, it's, I, I it's this, the most, it it's the said. most infuriating thing in football. You watch like El Clasico, and it's just the games can be ruined by players swarming around trying to get other players booked and just haranguing the referee. It is the worst spectacle in football.
0: About eight, I thought I was
3: going to be the one to give you a speech there, Hugh. But actually, we, we agree. Yeah. About
0: eight years ago, the PGMOl they reminded they had a briefing and they reminded clubs and the media that. To surround the referee is an offence and there would be bookings because they wanted to stop this happening. So for there to be two incidents in the same weekend of a player number three being cautioned for approaching means they've obviously had another meeting about it. And I can't believe they haven't briefed the clubs as a reminder that this would happen. Because if they haven't, it seems a little bit unfair. It's a bit random to suddenly start doing it again. Uh, they're, not, they're not doing anything wrong, mm. but they let it slip. They let these things slide so yeah. that they've not been booking people. They see for that, that in the summer, and okay.
3: then and then they forget about them, and yeah. then they re- reimagine yeah. them. Exactly. And then it's, there's no consistency. you
0: have to breathe the players beforehand. You
2: remind it. them this is it. There is no there's no Sunday league chat in professional football. Those of us that are like hanging around the tunnel before football matches, yeah, the team sheets go in, and there's a toss, and there's a little bit of a right. Have a good game, guys. Not too much aggression today. But we need a good Sunday league chat, okay? We need the officials in the change rooms beforehand. I want the studs checked. I need to see if there's any jewellery on. I want a little conversation with both sides here. Listen, guys, I'm just here to do my best. If you call me X, Y, and Z, you're going to get sent off. If you run in at me, I'm going to give you a yellow card. If there's a tackle at this level... You're going to be sent off and we need it fully explained. If the translators need to come in, they need to come in. Okay, but that chat needs to happen. In fairness, And it doesn't happen enough. In fairness, sometimes it doesn't when the team sheets are, team sheets are, are swapped. Yeah, because only, only the captains. You captain. need to speak to the whole team before the game. Yeah. A la Sunday League, Okay, right? When the ref comes over to you on the touchline with the oranges and whatnot and he says, all right, guys, you know, good to see you again. Sorry about that Duff penalty the last time I refed you. It'll be good today. And then he gives you the full spiel. And no one's paying attention. But when you get booked in the game, at least he told you or she told you. Right, that's it. That's all I'm saying. It needs to happen more often. Mario Lamina, take your medicine um, because I thought it was a deserved yellow card. Second yellow card. Anyway, Southampton needs something very soon. I've seen today they're linked with the Argentine Marcelo Gallardo. Jesse Marsh linked with a job, as you mentioned. And I just wondered if, I really wonder if anyone can turn them around at this point. But good luck with the rest of the season, Saints fans. Arsenal drop more points after a draw with Brentford. Manchester City easing to a pretty routine victory over Aston Villa. It means that if City win at the Emirates on Wednesday evening, they will be top of the Premier League table, albeit having played a game more. But that would be a huge boost for them, given recent off-field events and, to be honest, recent on-field performances as well. But let's start with Arsenal. A defeat to City in the FA Cup, defeat to Everton, a draw with Brentford. We'll discuss the VAR error a little bit later on. But going into this game, what state of mind will Arsenal be in, knowing full well that if they lose, now the pressure has ramped up, they will be second in the Premier League table?
0: I think they'll be relieved they got away with the draw against Brentford, to be quite honest. Um, and they'll be thinking we can handle City better than we can we could possibly handle. Do you know, Saliba lost every single aerial duel in that match? Because I think most of them were up against Ivan Tony. And you know what you're getting with Brentford? Surely you prepare for it. They were, they were completely out-muscled by a team who weren't scared by their status at the top of the table. It's a very peculiar thing. And before the game, actually, um, Thomas Frank said, we've now got this rivalry with Arsenal, which stems, a very new one, but it stems from the fact that when Brentford came up, their first game was a 3-0 victory over Arsenal and put them into a sort of crisis where people were saying, oh, when is Arteta going to be sacked? So it's created this brand new London derby feel to it. And Brentford went into that with all that sense of, well, we don't. We don't care who you are. We we know we can beat you, and we can beat you again, and we can cause you problems. That's the sort of thing that Arsenal are still not quite good at doing, not quite good at sorting out. I I, I just felt they knew what they were up against. They've been humiliated by them before. They know exactly what they need to do, and they didn't do it. Whereas against City, I think I actually think they'll take a deep breath, and think, "Oh, thank goodness, we know." better now because they've had a lot of praise for their performances against City even if they haven't beaten them they've not looked like they've been outwitted or out fought so I think I think they'll just be relieved they got the draw and want to go for it actually I don't think they'll be cowed by the prospect of being demoted to second place
2: well, well I do think the result against Brentford means they pretty much have to go for it they need the Emirates fully behind them they need a great start they, they can't really afford to go behind I think the jitters will hit them if you like and the fans will maybe get you know, it can suck the energy out of the stadium if Manchester City go ahead, because everyone will think, "Oh no, they're going to overtake us in the title race." The wider picture is now blown open. I think had it been the feeling that no matter what the result, we'll have our, we'll have Manchester City at arm's length. You think, all right, you know, if they score first, doesn't matter, we'll come back. We've done it before this season. But I do think...
0: No, but then they were deserved. No, no, because a lot of what they've built this season has been built on the crowd being different and getting behind them when they have gone behind. That is but, a huge but, but, part of it. I'm not saying And if, the they, crowd... if you're saying if you're saying the crowd are going to wobble if they can see no, 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 no. as... I'm not
2: saying that the crowd's going to turn or anything like that. What I'm saying is...
0: No, they've been getting louder when they've gone behind. Yeah, That's you... the
2: difference. The, the, the worry has been there the whole season. Can Arsenal outlast Manchester City? Can they go all the way? And until the last couple of games, you've been feeling like they can. And ultimately, you see Manchester City go up. In your mind, you're like, okay, if we lose this game, we're going to be second in the Premier League, albeit they've played a game more. But you suddenly start to think, we haven't got it. And you could still be cheering as loud as you want and saying, come on, lads. But deep down in the pit of your stomach, you might be thinking like, oh, they're going to catch us and and we're not going to win the Premier League.
0: As long as they don't let it sound that way.
1: But the implication of that is, and, I, and I'm not saying that you're wrong to imply this, but because we've all been thinking it, haven't we? That the, the idea is that Arsenal will only win the title if they hang on and keep City away. There's no if City catch them, that it won't it won't flip flop back the other way, you know. And I actually wonder whether that's actually true, because if it, we're talking about this purely about Arsenal, of course, but I don't know whether Manchester City have not got a few more blips in them along the way, which again comes back to the psychology of. If on Thursday we're talking about a Manchester City win, we'll be saying, can Arsenal go again? Can they regroup a couple of games with without, without a win, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So th- there are lots of layers to this, but I do think we should factor that in, that this isn't, if um, City win, that's it, they're going to steamroll it. As, you know, Gregor, you've quite rightly suggested at certain points, they've got that in them. They've got a 10-game relentless winning run in them. At least. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you could, you could well be right, but isn't it? That's part of this conversation is that Arsenal went out in front, and they've got to stay out in front. You know, it's like the long distance race. The two tactics: the the, the person that goes out
2: and attacks. Can they hang on? Can they keep going? Have they got the stamina? Uh, but, but you know when you know when it's you know when it's like the ten thousand meters at the Olympic Games, right? And the you know the one that's won the gold medal at the last two Olympics is there hovering around third, say. And everyone's waiting for them to make a move. And you know, there's someone at the front who's just been brilliant so far. They've never won anything, and everyone's on the commentary surprised, and I know absolutely nothing about the ten thousand meters. So I'm sitting. There We're saying, in the analogy now, though. You exactly, can't remember.
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm still in the analogy. I'm saying as I'm watching, I'm just like, okay, well, this is going to be a surprise. You know, when you're just like, okay, so here's the the seasoned vet, and here would be the surprise gold medal winner. And the moment the you know on the final lap. The gold medal winner, the season bet times their sprint perfectly. And you just see the corner of the eye, the person that thought all of my dreams are going to come true here. I've run a perfect race. And with 300 meters to go, you just see the gold medalist, you know, the one that's done it so many times, just edging in front. And you just watch real time. Okay. Ralph Wiggum styley. Heartbreak. Okay, you see it. I never thought you'd bring The Simpsons in. <laughs> you pause it and you go there. That's the moment. Heart's broken. Right. I mean, it could feel like that. I'm just, you know, I well, do this think is, this I is already do... a, te- a new test for Arsenal. Yeah, already just because I've had a little blip,
3: and they're, you know, if they lose, they will they will give up top spot. But then that would pro- that would produce another kind of test for them. They're going to be these changes. I think I think Tom's right. I think there could be like I think neither teams. Convincing enough to suggest, and Arsenal have been, I you know, but this is new to them. I don't think either team is convincing enough to suggest that they'll just run away with it. The, only, the ones most likely, which I've said <laughs> for a while now, is City. But I don't actually haven't be, haven't been at the City game the other, um, yesterday. I still don't think they were, you know, they were good in the first half, but I still think that they are yeah. gifting goals yeah, quite yeah. quite consistently. Yeah, the psychology matters, and this is a, this is a huge test for Arsenal, massive test, and. If they go, if they if they give up top spot, there'll be another one. But sometimes, I mean, something just came to my mind. I interviewed Paul Warren recently. He was the Derby County manager. He did a brilliant podcast with um, Focus. that was he was kind of followed when he was rather United manager, mm. and they were they were like ten, twelve points out at, out in front at the top of League One, and they they went on a shocking run and they fell out of the out of the top two. And he said, I I, I felt relief, felt relief, and I, I preferred being the hunter rather than the hunted. I know that'll sound Really strange to you But it's almost like A week can be lifted So this is all quite complex If they, First of all I've been like Watching for, for all all season mm. At City Kind of keeping them At arm's length And then well, We're getting ahead of ourselves But if they give up To a spot It may be like Right hey, okay Well that's that, that's that done The worst has happened What are we going to do now yeah,
1: that, that that's kind of what I was leaning towards, and I was I'm not I'm not here saying I hope Arsenal need to lose that'll that'll sort them out, but there is the other aspects of Champions League for Manchester City further in down the line. Gabriel Jesus coming back, there, there are all parts to fold into this discussion around the psychology of this title race that aren't just on this game. If Arsenal blow it, they've blown it. I do think there's more to come in these moments, and it, and I said this before the Brentford game, and it didn't happen. Alisson said, you know, probably draws a pretty good result. I said about the manner of the performance was almost as important as the points themselves. But I do think this is that significant as well. If they were to say draw, but play really well, I don't think that would be disastrous in the grand scheme of this title, race. Right?
2: I mean, listen, uh, everything I've said on previous podcasts, I still I still believe, I do think Arsenal are the better team. I don't really see that City have it in them to go on that incredible winning run of seasons gone by. Um, and, and again, we're reflecting as if, you know, City have already won the game. I still think Arsenal will probably be favourites, in my opinion, at the Emirates in front of their own fans. I think it will be well, the most incredible atmosphere of the season. So given everything that I've said about City possibly scoring first, etc., the flip side is true. If Arsenal score first, then all of those dreams about we're going to win the Premier League, you know, they they also come home and the crowd get even louder and even happier. And it could be a fantastic evening at the Emirates for them. It's going to be a great game.
3: Alison's fundamental point is true also that after Everton and Brentford, two teams that bullied them, they'll almost prefer to have to face Manchester City, who will leave spaces for Martinelli and Saka to exploit down in the flanks, who will come at them. You know, who want to play football. They'd rather play a game of football. So you don't, you don't think mixed. that's going to lump it? No, Big Erling's not fit.
1: Well, no, stick <laughs> Rodri up front. Go along. (laughs)
2: Um, I I, want to talk about Manchester City a little bit more because since we've last spoken, there was a pretty extraordinary press conference from their manager, Pep Guardiola, uh, verging on conspiracy theory at times. Thank you, Pep. Uh, Defending Manchester City against the 110 or so, 115 charges brought by the Premier League last week. Of course, City deny any wrongdoing. But I noticed, of course, in that conversation that, that... Guardiola staked a lot. He staked his reputation on basically Manchester City having told him the truth. I kind of found it weird that he hasn't called Roberto Mancini. Just on a little sly one. How were they paying you? You know, Why why haven't you called him? But anyway, aside from that, I also noticed a pretty huge change on the pitch this weekend. Pep looked fuming before the game against Aston Villa. And I was like, why is he so angry? Why does he look so annoyed? Then I looked at the team. And I was like, oh, okay. See, you're not meant to knock on Pep Guardiola's door. That just isn't meant to happen. First time this season, Laporte, Ruben Diaz, Kyle Walker, Ilkay Gundogan, Bernardo Silva, and Kevin De Bruyne all started a match. And I know he either is such a genius that he's held that in reserve, basically the the spine, the body of his team from last season, which won him the title, He's either held that in reserve, and he was like, "Okay, I can finally unleash it. We're going to wait for the Arsenal game. I'll we'll just give him a little run out against Villa. You know, tune them up against Villa, and then we'll all unleash them at the Emirates." You could definitely get the long-distance runner analogy back in here. If <laughs> <you want that. laughs> or those players, maybe the squad have said, mm-hmm. "Look, we need to start playing our best team."
3: It still, still wasn't conventional. We, I was sitting next to Paul Arst watching this, going, "Is that Bernardo Silva basically playing centre half?" Yeah. Like, this was not conventional. Sometimes Rodri has done this, you know, he's almost like an auxiliary centre-half, but then he steps into midfield, like he's the pivot, but there were, there were two of them. And yeah. sometimes, Bernardo Silva was like marking Jacob Ramsey or someone if he yeah. went into this forward line. It was not conventional. I understand what you're saying. He put put, the, put his big-name players out, but it, it was unusual. And I, I'd be surprised if they play that way against Arsenal as well. Why? No. The they 3-0 up at half-time. Well, the, you, you, your only wits is is Grealish and Mares against a team with the best kind of attacking play on the flank, particularly on well, the left being a wee bit, wee, wee bit off par. But, you know, Martinelli and Saka, they, they
2: don't really have any wit to say In terms of the press, though, Bernardo Silva going deeper has helped how they've conceded goals a lot and even conceded a goal like that yesterday, to be perfectly honest. But losing the ball, a simple pass into midfield is basically how they concede every goal at the moment. You know, giving away yeah. that ball with a with a midfielder with their back to the opposition, having that pressure come onto them, which Arsenal will apply, especially at home, losing the ball in that area has been one of the reasons why they've conceded goals. So I'm not going to say they're going to be more direct. But if you've got two options to pass the ball to there one of them is Bernardo Silva, brilliant inside areas, it helps. I think you make a good point about Bernardo Silva and his positioning in relation to Arsenal, but maybe it's as simple as
1: rather than the kind of Long view of this held the players back type thing. Maybe it is simply that he knows he's got a huge game against Arsenal, and the likes of De Bruyne and people have been out of form, and he knows he'll want to play them, so he put them in the game three games three days before. That maybe it's as simple as
3: that. He also said after the game that uh, you know he's complained about a lot of players' body language. And he's saying that the atmosphere has not been good in training, and like, you know, I think he even referenced Kyle Walker maybe in the past. But he said that it's been changed in the last week, ten days. He said in the press conference afterwards that been their attitude, the kind of. Just their work on the training ground has has, has improved greatly. So uh, and he he puts great you know great weight behind that. So I think that probably helped them pick his best team as well.
0: No one is undroppable with Pep though, and he he has to keep that vibe going. It's his thing. He ex- always expects more. We sit here as mere mortals and think, oh, he's he's a good player. <laughs> he doesn't see it that way at all. But surely part of his demeanour, Hugh, was his annoyance at the whole charges brought against City. And the most interesting thing about that from you um, referenced his press conference is when the news broke, a lot of people led on the fact that Pep had said, I will go the minute I find out they've been lying to me. And he's completely flip-flopped on that and now is and now refusing to accept that they could have been lying to him. It's a bit naughty, really. One, what, one statement is all about integrity and the second one is saying, I don't care. He's almost saying, I don't care what the outcome is, I still believe my team. Yeah, exactly. I still believe my owners.
3: Also interesting that he kind of let it slip out since the Abu Dhabi takeover, despite the club doing everything they could to, to sort of refute that that's, that it's a takeover by Abu Dhabi rather than a se- separate entity. I think that's the first time we've done that. This is another factor when you talk about the title
1: race, isn't it, in a, in the grand scheme of things. You know, we're talking about Arsenal and, all. God, they've dropped a couple of points. This is another reason why it's not straightforward for City. You've got Pep doing, which, let's be honest, almost Rafa Benitez-style, Slightly lost the plot. Press conferences mentioning, "Oh, it's fine. I'll, I'll go, I'll go down with them. I'll go down to League One. We'll get Dickov back, and all this kind of stuff." <laughs> and you're like, I'll oh, yeah. i would be out training for in Australia. Yeah, I know. It's, it's all good fun, and we laugh because it's Pep Guardiola. But actually, if it was any other manager, we'd be going, "He's lost the plot here."
2: But because it's Pep Guardiola and he's quite suave, then everyone's like, "Oh, no, oh, it's quite a good uh, fun." Uh, my reflection, yeah. was, was essentially that he's lost the plot. I mean, this is a manager who was meant to be. You know, he has proven to be, at many junctures, a quite a moral guy, and he essentially staked his reputation on the fact that he believes Manchester City are telling the truth, and that they've done absolutely nothing wrong. And he, he, it, there were some kind of factual inaccuracies, if you like, in that he kind of said, we proved we've proven ourselves innocent before in front of UEFA, which isn't categorically the case. And again, the Premier League, you know, they've brought a huge number of charges. Not all of them are about what the UEFA case was about. I mean, there was, a, there was a lot in there, including the last three years of kind of non-compliance with the investigation, non-cooperation in the investigation from Manchester City. And again, they deny all wrongdoing, but it would be simply huge for the Premier League if they're found guilty. We'll probably have to do a special at that point in time. But um, going back to what you said about Pep, I just... i. I found it in almost in, insane that he didn't just say the clubs put out a statement, refer to that, because he will look like a complete buffoon if they're found guilty.
0: I think he already does a bit because he's backtracking on what was a very moral stance. It's just, I think it's just bizarre to in, in, indicate, in. indicate in the, that doesn't. And now he now, now doesn't care what the facts show or an investigation concludes.
3: It was a it was a peculiar atmosphere as well. I mean the first time you got your
0: own arm guard
3: didn't you oh yeah to some Paul first and directly to his left sitting on the cool concrete steps is a steward because there'd been some mention in, on social media I think of like people going to confront uh, journalists because of the reporting on, on the story oh. so there's at the end of each row there was a steward sitting on the cool concrete which is a first and another first is a banner unfurled uh, with an image of the KC uh, lord panic who's going to be
2: representing i tweeted this at the weekend that was one of the most panic on the streets of <laughs> have <wondered. laughs> but, but it was one of the most extraordinary things that i've ever seen it was, firstly i think it's dangerous if you turn a, a lawyer into a hero then you can turn a lawyer into a villain so what happens to that lawyer if manchester city lose this case are they at fault and what do the fans then project onto the lawyer if they like i say if they lose I just think that is dangerous anyway. But it's also just a weird thing of modern football. Why on earth <laughs> saying, would, would there be a banner in a football stadium about a lawyer who's an Arsenal, isn't he not? No, the investigator is an Arsenal fan. But I just find, I, I find it to be, you know, utterly perverse, if you like, that you, you, you can, you know, lionise a, a lawyer in that way. I just, you can't really, you shouldn't really, I guess. But yeah, I think it just goes back to this case being simply huge for those Manchester City fans and... Again, we'll get into it depending on, on the outcome. But um, yeah, I guess it is another another angle for this game against Arsenal in midweek.
0: Well, uh, yeah, we, I, it will be interesting to see if that sense of indignation carries on for the rest of the season or that was like the peak of it and it, they go back to just uh,
2: listen, pretending it's not uh, happening. Guardiola has been asking for the fans, for his players, to have some fire, some desire, something that has been missing at Manchester City. He's been speaking about it, so... He might just be a genius that says, this is it. This can galvanise us. We can actually build up the case of all the other clubs, all the other 19 clubs being against us in the Premier League and and talking about conspirators, basically. He didn't use that word, but essentially says, you know, when they tried to get us banned by UEFA, well, these nine clubs, and for the first time he named the nine clubs, these were the ones that wrote to UEFA wanting us kicked out of the Champions League. And he's now making it and, and, and trying to make it a case of, The Premier League are after us. Everyone's after us. I found it interesting to hear him talk about, you know, we won all of those titles on the pitch and we deserve them. And it's like, well, if you've broken all the rules, if these um, allegations are to be true, then you haven't because you've built the football club in an artificial way, which has allowed you to become the manager of Manchester City. It's
0: interesting though, isn't it? Because he's always been sensitive about the idea that he's won things because of the money. And if you make the money dirty... Then you make everything about him dirty.
3: Uh, on the football side, they were good in the first half. Yeah, they were good. Yeah. They moved the ball quickly. Jack Grealish was They couldn't quite get a hold of him. Him and Marez on the other side. Kundigan and De Bruyne. played closer to Haaland so he didn't look isolated. It was decent in the first half, and although Aston Villa were were rank. <laughs>
2: Let's talk about the VAR decisions next just because we're reflecting on Arsenal, Manchester City, this title race. But, um, you know, we're talking about Arsenal dropping points. They wouldn't have, I guess, if it wasn't for human error because we should point out that Brentford's equaliser probably shouldn't have stood due to an offside in the build-up. And Howard Webb, who's the chief... Of the referees' body, the PGMOL has called a meeting for Premier League referees to discuss the mistakes um, in the use of VAR this weekend, which I find a bit weird. I mean, it is they're so overt. What are we meant? What what is that meeting going to dissect? So a player closest to the goal, they're offside. So, I mean, what are you going to tell them? Well,
0: hopefully, hopefully, it's not that sort of meeting. Hopefully, the meeting is trying to establish why those mistakes are Are they? Are officials under too much pressure? Is is it a job that they hate? Is it too difficult for them? Are they are they listening to too much info? Are they over briefed so that they do diverted by looking for fouls in the build-up to goals so that you actually forget to look for offside? Is it you need more people working the system? You don't need a meeting to be told what offside is. You need a meeting to find out whether the, the, the people operating VAR are actually suitable to be operating it. It's a big leap to say because you're a good on-field referee who's worked your way up a pyramid and you're assessed after every game and they assess mostly things like your demeanour and your ability to control a game, it's your on-field abilities. Those things do not translate to being sat beside it behind a computer screen. This is the sort of thing that the meeting has to sort out. Just because you're good at putting on the shorts and holding a whistle doesn't mean you're good at operating a system.
2: I should tell you, as you've been answering that question to talk about timing on this podcast, a piece of breaking news, John Brooks replaced as VAR for both Liverpool versus Everton tonight and Arsenal versus Manchester City on Wednesday evening. Andre Mariner and David Coote will assume VAR duties in his place tonight and Wednesday, respectively due to a Monday evening fixture appointments for the weekend's matches will be announced tomorrow.
3: Alison's Al- point's right, I mean... Well, we know what was in the meeting now. Yeah, but I that, mean, she's right. But Lee, Lee Mason was basically relieved of his duties as a referee because he wasn't good enough, and he was made the first dedicated VAR, mm. and I believe he was, he was... Yeah, 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 Lee yeah? Mason, yeah. So, uh, that, that's backs up your point, you know, he wasn't even deemed a good referee and so he's kind of shunted him away into the VAR var truck and he's not being a good enough VAR either.
2: Lee Mason did not draw on the right guidelines to check for offside on Brentford's equaliser against Arsenal. Brighton also had a goal disallowed for offside against Crystal Palace after the VAR guidelines were wrongly drawn on the pitch.
0: You need whiz kids. You need whiz kids behind the computers who completely get the rules quick brains, not not distracted by their relationship with the on-field referees and their history of interpreting events. You need somebody who recognises the computer is only about the computer, the lines are only about the lines, the technology is just about technology and forgetting that they've had years of refereeing. Because I think they can be in conflict. If they're not in conflict, there's no need to have VAR in the first place.
3: Although I think AI may solve the, the offside issue anyway. And like, like the World Cup, semi semi automated yeah. offsides.
2: Even so, that wasn't exactly kind of you know, I entirely satisfied either. Here is the thing: they've asked almost for too much from VAR, and I think by putting referees in the chair, you almost make them feel like they have to officiate. And the best thing about being the VAR, and the reason that so many people think they can do it, is because you don't have to make a decision; you just have to say, "I think you might want to have a look at that." You just have to say, them there's probably a decision for you to make. You could do it, Gregor. <laughs> you should do it, Gregor. Yeah, I mean, I like, if you. I like your writing. I like your writing, but, you know, no, because genuinely speaking, it's okay. There's a huge error in terms of Brighton's goal. You know, drawing the offside line, not for the deepest defender. You can't really make that mistake. Um, and Lee Mason, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe distracted by the fact that they were looking for the foul. It's weird. I mean, there are other sports that have their, if you like, the technology, the video assistant referee. I think it's just better in a weird way. And, and there are some points that I think help in other sports, which are, for one, and I don't know it's weird, but in rugby they can hear the commentators, the the video officials. So when the commentators, the pundits, the ex-players say, oh, I think that was a high shot, I think it helps. The officials because they then say oh okay this ex-england international saying things that tackles high let's just have a look i actually do think that helps them and i, th- I don't think they do that in the premier league they don't want to be influenced by the commentary whatsoever
0: so i mean gary neville decides who wins the title?
2: doesn't decide who wins the title but um you know wealth of experience someone like gary neville says oh that probably should have been a free kick i'm not saying that you give the decision It's maybe worth...
0: I bet, honestly, Hugh, I bet if you analysed every comment made by the commentary team on a match about whether something was or wasn't offside or a foul or wasn't a foul and then worked out the truth, they would be off by a factor of 50.
2: Okay, all right, I'm wrong on that one. Um, Should VAR, I should be doing VAR, should VAR be uh, got rid of? Come on, I've really enjoyed the Carabao Cup games that I've been at, EFL Cup games that I've been at. Yeah, It's felt very real, very natural. The ball hits the back of the net. The atmosphere is absolutely brilliant. And it's probably better than the Premier League in some ways. Yep. You agree? Absolutely. So we bit it off. Tom? I mean, you're looking at a fan of
1: a club in the League One who went on Saturday and watched the opposition have a man sent off for a challenge, a kind of high elbow on the, our goalkeeper. Wasn't a great one, but I was sat there and I was thinking, and the referee went over to the linesman, had a chat for about... 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and then decided to show a red card. Oh, It was a contentious decision, so much so that Jerry Barton, the Bristol Rovers manager, was still upset about it full-time, as he often is. But I was stood there thinking, if this was VAR, this would be five minutes. They would be going back and forth and slowing it down, mm-hmm. going, has he jumped aggressively, all this kind of stuff. So I'm completely with you. I don't think they should get rid of it now, because that would be the most farcical end to what has been a fairly farcical procedure so far to get to the right point they've gone too far down the path now, they need to get it right Um, and I think a lot of the points that Alison raised in terms of the technological side of things making it more streamlined taking away some of the referees I think Gregor's point about Lee Mason if he's not a good enough referee on the pitch, why is he in in the, uh, the van you know it's kind of slightly slapstick isn't it when if it was a heist movie it would have been the bit where the security guard like ducks his head down and misses the people run past the cctv and <laughs> um, you know and when they tell the amazon documentary about how man city won this title right goal difference or whatever this will that'll be the moment you know he kind of yeah, yeah all fine goes back to eating a big bag of giant crisps or something <laughs> like, it, it make it makes it it makes it slightly farcical doesn't it and i but i think getting rid of it would would only add to that
2: Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about Chelsea's trip to West Ham, shall we? it all square. Might as well start that one with VAR. Uh, Graham Potter talking about a good save from Hammers midfielder Thomas Suchek After it seemed quite clear for me, anyway, that Suchek had blocked Conor Gallagher's uh, shot with his arm. I think it, I think it was a save. I think I agree with Graham Potter. This is an, so it's another big decision here that's cost a team a result. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, it's it's a different kind of mistake there are mistakes which are just like you're operating the system wrong and being distracted and making procedural errors and then there's interpretation mistakes Yeah. so it's not ridiculous that one official might see it a certain way and if there's supposed to be an advantage with technology it's that you can have a look from different angles and realize that yeah that that is an infringement he's 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 blocked a goal bound shot with his arm and uh it should be called out as such but i th- I think we're talking about different things here because that's about i think handball has become a sort of dirty phrase and people are scared of it and it's constantly re reevaluated, and the laws are changed on it and interpretation of it has now become incredibly difficult because it's just so hard every single one and then there's no consistency. Sometimes handballs are given for less obvious situations. So it's it's tricky. But what makes this one noteworthy is that I think probably 99% of people looking at it would think, you can't do that. Yeah, that's just
3: right. It's, that's the subjective one where the other ones were just absolute cock-ups. So um, and where we may all agree with, with uh, the, the idea of the penalty, it's possible that someone doesn't. In fact, Martin Samuel, although I believe he's a White West Ham fan, mm-hmm. uh, wrote today that he didn't. And he also made a good point that it's a strange position that we're in that um, Graham Potter's perceived as weak for not hammering the referee in his post-match uh, media duties to kind of deflect from from another failure to, to get three points. So, yeah, that... I,
2: I would have given given it as a penalty, but it's different. Elton's speak, to the football generally, and and as I say, maybe Chelsea should have got the win. But two wins in thirteen Premier League games now for Chelsea, but it feels like the pressure on Graham Potter has dwindled. I mean, it's it, you know the Chelsea fans are kind of sitting there looking at Southampton, saying, "Okay, they've got higher standards at Southampton than we do at Chelsea, do they?" Because we won two in thirteen. Um, they're they're kind of scratching their heads that the board think this is acceptable. Are you?
0: I think I don't know every single Chelsea fan that exists, but the ones I do know I think it would be very peculiar not to give Graham Potter the whole season. And they do wonder that because what you've it's a very exceptional set of circumstances. And if you've got if you're an intelligent Chelsea fan, you can understand what happened. The, the, the summer recruitment was just peculiar, it's built around Thomas Tuchel, who then gets fired. So you can sort of write off all the money spent as it was pandering to Tuchel. So you start again with a new manager, a host of injuries, and then a host of new faces, and they're all available at different times. And I think most people would accept that's a lot on your plate as a new manager in an environment that he's not used to. And you have to recall, he was poached from Brighton and he was told you will get time. So he left Brighton because he he thought he would get time. I think the, part of the reason Potter wasn't having hysterics about, about the handball decision is that he knew, he's not surprised, he knew this was going to be a tough job and it certainly is. He's not saying embarrassing things like Nathan Jones said. He's a very considered, measured, he's not drenched in aura but that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. He's steady and there are glimpses. There are glimpses when they play where you could say, Oof, they could play like that twenty minutes the whole time. This is going to be an aesthetically pleasing team that could go places. It's just, it's just that sense of learning how to luxuriate in knowing there isn't the axe around the corner. It's a new state of mind for Chelsea and its supporters. That hang on a minute, in the in the Abramovich era, he'd be gone by now. But actually, we're going to try and grow slowly and we've certainly got the tools at our disposal to do that once we find a system it'd be interesting what they do in Europe actually if he manages to click in the Champions League I think fans and more or less forgive and write off the Premier League season
3: it'd be madness if he, if he wasn't given till the end of the season in fact next season as well certainly the start of next season otherwise any sort of idea that, that this ownership group have like a strategy or a long-term vision which would be obliterated I mean it's becoming quite uh, difficult to hold on to That idea anyway But And there was some problem. They could have been a, f- a few goals up in the first half A couple of offsides. sides Felix looked pretty lively mm-hmm. Um, Although it's unfortunate That he's You know One of the only players That's not there long term <laughs> And he's looked the brightest spark Probably But I thought it was an interesting nugget In Bill Aker's column today That Graham Potter's the first manager Since Jimmy Bloomfield In 1974 To get 50 Premier League draws Before Before wins or losses Top, of draws top from, flight draws Not Premier League yeah. of course Not 74 then But <laughs> top flight draws That's quite unusual yeah. For someone who's yeah, yeah. Yeah. But underlines His kind of strange tra- trajectory And This, this sort of uh, Slightly out of the ordinary That Graham Potter Is the Chelsea manager And that's what We've been seeing for so long That You know As much as I said It's refreshing that uh, He didn't come out and hammer the, the referee for that For that blunder Or the VAR Every Chelsea manager For the last decade Would have been Absolutely two-footing so there is It just that was another sort of way of underlining uh, the change that has happened at Chelsea, and it's still hard
2: to get your head around. But, but if Chelsea become like Potter, that's not good for their football club, then is it? I mean, it might they, be long term if they give them a long, long, enough time and they give them the resources. But, but, but and but the club has had edge for twenty years. You know, ultimately, that the club has made decisions that gave them an edge, that added pressure to the players, the the manager. The managers have come in with an edge. They have added that pressure. The, the fans obviously expect success. That adds an edge. And then you've got a very pleasant guy in the middle of it whose culture at the football club is what? That's the thing. Well, well now you tell me. It's the question. Like, what, if, if Chelsea change into the image of Graham Potter, does that make them better? It makes them different. We don't know if it makes them better.
3: Like what they've done, what they've been has been successful. There's no two ways about that. But they're looking for something a bit more Holistic if that's the right word. And it's we've had this conversation many times. It, there's no question that Graham Potter has edge. He just doesn't show us it. And he chooses not to show us it. So he's not he's not got to where he is without
2: without having edge. Another positive weekend for David Moyes, I think, in West Ham United. Uh, getting a point against uh, big London rivals. Another team from London, Spurs, went to Leicester and were given a hiding this weekend, to be perfectly honest. Antonio Conte back in the dugout. The performance probably more painful than his gallbladder removal. Uh, Christian Stellini, their assistant, came out and questioned Spurs' mentality and desire. I mean, you don't want your assistant coach to be, you know, I mean, it's all right if the manager does it. The assistant manager. That's your job. It's <laughs> like Tottenham's the mentality and desire, isn't it, Hugh? What's going on? I, I'm glad some professionals agree with me on that, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, not at the ideal debut, you've got to say, for the right wing back, Pedro Porro. Uh, bad news for Rodrigo Benton, Kurt as well, out for the season with a ruptured ACL. So it's, it's all going wrong for Tottenham at the moment. But it is very Spursy, isn't it? You beat Manchester City. Of course you do. You go and you get thumped by Leicester City, who were brilliant, you've got to say. What did you make of it? I'll start with you, Tom. Uh, They were brilliant. I'm I'm going to start with Leicester because endlessly fascinating that
1: we've talked so much about clubs on this podcast, changes, managerial changes, alluding to Chelsea there and kind of seasons of transition and stuff. It's going to be fascinating how Leicester end this season, isn't it, in terms of the players that they've signed, players that they've lost, uh, all the kind of uh, conjecture around the manager, and they're still there putting in these kind of performances. I would also like to have a brief moment for Mendy's goal, which has got oh. to be one of the ultimate ball-dropping to a player who shouldn't shoot, <laughs> who is then told to shoot by the entire stadium, shoot, and he bangs it in the top corner. Like That never happens. That never happens. We see it every weekend. Everyone who goes to a game, everyone shouts shoot when the centre-back gets it or the defensive midfielder gets it not more often than not he doesn't normally or or he bangs it in that rose yeah what a what a strike absolutely superb but ben leicester were fantastic we should you know we have to do that we always do before we then start slagging off the big clubs but they
2: were brilliant and they deserve huge credit for the kind of well, way they're able to put it's, in these it's interesting kind of that, you, that you say oh before we start slaying off the big clubs because my main takeaway from this was that we should expect a lot more from Leicester City? They're, they they shouldn't actually be perceived as one of the smaller clubs. They've massively underperformed. We know the recruitment hasn't been where it needs to be. They've they brought it must in a couple. It's non-existent. They've underinvested. Yeah. yeah. And they've, met, they've been they've had a huge injury list. James
3: Madison's come back as well. He's like just reminding us that he's probably the best number ten in the Premier League. He's ma- it's almost masterful that we've forgotten about them, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and they smashed Tottenham for <laughs> And
1: then we start going, hang on, be, these like, these like, guys are really good. And now we're gonna start slagging them off again next week when they <laughs> lose or
2: draw and in disappointing fashion.
3: Harry Souter at the back. Yeah. I'll see that every week now.
2: Yeah. Good. <laughs> Scored uh four two weeks in a row. I mean, looking very, very good for Leicester City. Tottenham, you, you kind of wonder where they are right now. They, they, I think the benton news will be a huge blow for them. Uh, look, I've had it in my mind for a while. I think the Conte, I mean, it's like everything's good. You know, it's a catalogue of, of issues in terms of things in his personal life. It just doesn't feel like he's having a great time at Tottenham Hotspur. They probably need a manager with, let's call it, more realistic expectations, given what the board is um, willing to invest in their squad. And they are... For me, it feels like limping towards the end of the season, really. And maybe a juncture where Harry Kane moves on. We know there's headlines written about his future and they can kind of start a fresh new manager. Hopefully many new players, new squad, new outlook, new Spurs. Because at the moment it's just, you know, I mean, again, you know, people talk about Eric Dyer, But I remember at the start of the season when he was playing well and went to the World Cup. But people were saying, "I I kind of find it incredible that Eric Dyer still plays for Spurs. You know, and it's one of those where you think, yeah, they haven't really changed their squad enough. You've got people like Tanganga playing games, you know, it's not good enough. But I mean, I don't disagree with any of the points you're making
1: there in terms of the difficulties that they're having. And I completely agree with you about Benson Kerr. I saw lots of Tottenham fans on social media this morning saying that's about as bad as, you know, almost as bad as Kane being injured. But, to, you know, to use the cliche, the table doesn't lie. You could look at it and be like, well, Tottenham are fifth. You know they they're, they play one more game more than Newcastle, but they're two points behind them in fourth. You've got Chelsea and Liverpool down in ninth and tenth. And actually, we're having a debate about oh, you know, Potter should be getting some time. Can you know we're all convinced that Klopp and Liverpool will come again, and yet we're going oh, Conte, Tottenham nightmare, absolute disaster. Whereas actually, if they're 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 in contention for the, to chase for the top four. I know we had lots of chats about the slight delusions of them chasing the title at certain
3: points but is that is that anywhere where we didn't think they'd be at this point in the season no. I, uh, it comes back to what we spoke about earlier about how you project yourself and Antonio yeah. Conte is probably the reason why we're having that, why, why the conversation is in this is being framed in this way yeah um, sorry no.
2: <laughs> no, no, I'm, but
1: i but I, as I said, I don't oh, you're disagree. Not I mean, I don't disagree. We're, all, we're all, we're all, you know, we sat down on the editing desk before coming into this podcast, go, God, Tottenham is a nightmare, isn't it? And then I'm, I only just looked at the table, and like, is it a nightmare? It, I mean, it is, but, but why? It's so strange, isn't it? The way we, re- we frame all these things. And I think Gregor's right. It is Conte. They got Conte. And everyone's like, this takes Tottenham to the next level. This, this, this makes Tottenham the contenders, the real deal. They've got the superstar forward line. Now they've got Conte. Here we go, and actually they're 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 just a team competing to try and get in the top four. But I, that's no disaster to me as a, as an outside viewer. But I know a lot of Tottenham fans probably disagree.
0: I think, but I think part of it is that it feels so despairing. The reason it's and it shouldn't, if you look at the table, but it feels so despairing when you look at Spurs is because the fact that Conte cannot solve the big problem at Spurs makes you think. Or well, maybe nobody can because what they cannot do is achieve consistency. They are incapable, Spurs, of not resting on their laurels after a good result. They are incapable of putting in eight and a half out of ten performances week in, week out. They're either scintillating or they're or quite rubbish. And that's been Spurs' problem, this spursiness, this inability to build on success. And I think people thought Antonio Conte, he's got... The experience and the personality of the manager that can come in and he'll do it. He'll bring that solidity. He'll stop all that naffness. And if he can't do it, who can?
2: Five wins, a draw, and what, seven defeats? That's a bad run. And if that continues, they're not going to be fifth, I don't think. They're certainly not going to be in the Champions League. So it's one of those where you look at the table and you think, okay, well, fifth, not too bad, but... Um, look, two London derbies, they're both they're at home for both of them, so that's important, but um, they need results. West Ham and Chelsea up next, and of course we'll uh, look ahead to those, but it was a bad weekend for Tottenham Hotspur. Before we end the podcast, let's just round up some of the other results. Three more games I wanted to discuss with you. More points dropped for Newcastle, I guess it links with Tottenham a little bit. Um, they went to Bournemouth, um, five draws and one win in the last six league games for Eddie side. Um, and I wonder if Newcastle are maybe losing momentum slightly with these Well,
0: they're results. distracted by reaching a cup final. That's, I think that's palpably obvious,
2: actually. Um, Sorry.
0: And they're just not used to success to know how to handle that. It's only the EFL Cup. But there you go. They have been struggling. They've been defensively very impressive, but struggling to score goals. I think that takes its toll after a while. You start thinking, oh, what's going on here? I think they look increasingly like a one-man team. It's the Kieran Trippier show every time. He's outstanding and sometimes too much so. Lots of players have individually lifted their their game and played better than we thought they would. But he's, he's the only one that does it week in, week out and is often the reason they get a point from a game. And I think no one thought they'd finish in the top four at the start of the season. It was supposed to be a longer-term sports-washing project than this. So... Maybe they'll end up where we all thought they should in the first place, which is maybe getting a Europa League place.
3: Yeah, they're w- wildly ahead of schedule. I mean, this is still uh, 17 games unbeaten. Is right? Yeah, something uh, like that. Yeah. I
2: mean, creaky. The idea of Newcastle doing that at the start of the season. just pretty- league would be massive. It would. I know everyone's focusing on the cup final, but you can lose a cup final. Over 38 games, if, if they stay... That'd be a tough choice for Newcastle fans. No, sorry, but I'm I'm not saying about the choice. What I'm saying is if they lose that cup final, it's gone. You know, the Premier League over 38 games with the opportunity to finish in the Champions League, that would still be huge for the club as well. I
0: think they might implode, though. Why? Because it matters so much.
2: What if they lost that game, you mean?
0: To go to Wembley and not win, I think that would create havoc.
2: (sighs) I mean, I just think they need to refocus on the league a little bit and not be so distracted by it. I
0: don't think being deliberately distracted. No, it's no, just no, what no. happens when you're in Newcastle.
2: I think they need to deliberately refocus on it. Alison's right, though.
3: Cause the inability to score goals has been really... It's, it's hamstrung them. And Isaac's back fit. Wilson keeps kind of dropping in and out. I think yeah. he had a hamstring injury. Yeah. Sam Maxim's back fit now. I think they need to keep him fit because we could he have forgotten. Top, and he's he's he? done nothing this season. And he's, they, they were a one-man team. <laughs> he was their one man. Uh, and he's not he's not really been playing. So, you know, players like Almiron as well, we saw him at great heights and it's not quite, although he scored, it's not quite, they've been quite the same in recent weeks. So, uh, as I say, fundamentally, the truth is, this is wildly ahead of schedule and unexpected.
2: Right, okay, yeah. Uh, Manchester United, Um. Uh, I guess they're on schedule because I think they would have wanted to finish in the Champions League spots this season. They bounce back, if you like, from a draw with Leeds in midweek to beat them at Ellen Road and move seven points clear of Spurs in fifth, which I think is important for United in terms of the Champions League race. I still think the EFL Cup final will be important for them as well. But really, to reflect on Leeds United still searching for a new boss, the ball wouldn't fall for them early on. They're one of those teams, you know, the first 30 minutes, first half, they are a team that will throw the kitchen sink at you. And then after that, there, there isn't really a plan B. They didn't control the game enough actually I think um had they, they, they it might have been a very different result because the two goals for Manchester United come in kind of two moments where they just switch off lack concentration and United punish them um and the defensive performances again are still they still kind of lack for me Yep, yeah, they huff they puff and they get their own
1: house blown down don't they every single time leads I think you said it very accurately there Hugh The thing I would say from a positive point of view, when we've talked a lot about Southampton and other teams down the bottom, is Leeds have a lot of ingredients there that for a new manager coming in can take forward, I think. They are creating chances against a team like Manchester United, who have been pretty solid this season. Um, They'll be really disappointed not to get a point from that game, I think. And in modern football, we talk about a kind of intensity and a desire and willingness all the time. They have that by the bucket load because of being coached by Marcella Bielsa and then Jesse Marsh. So they're, they're the ingredients there that I think can help them climb the table. But you talk about control, I almost think if a manager came in and tried to give them some control, that would be you know, a, a wor- the worst thing he could do because all they've got is this kind of frenzied nature of playing. He needs, and A manager just needs to kind of direct that uh, into picking up some points and hopefully scoring some goals as well. Manchester United, you've got to say, Hugh game wins when they're not playing that well that's
2: another sign of a good team well obviously I get bombarded for saying Marcus Rashford wasn't that good about a year ago uh, every time he scores another goal although it was interesting to see Eric Ten Hag say you know he doesn't want any laziness to come into the thoughts of, of Rashford just because he's scoring goals at the moment but uh, the, the thing that I'm keen to do is not put Manchester United in the title race because I don't think that, I don't actually think they're good enough well I'd ask you to mate don't no, no,
0: no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually think they're good enough but and this is the thing, I, I, like mates are saying to me, you know, you kind of, you need to be involved more with the results. But I'm like, well, I feel quite, quite comfortable. You,
0: you've had so many mates.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what does involvement look like? as yeah. No, you know. Whipping and cheating. And yeah, <laughs> <yeah, they're, laughs> i kind of like, well, I think we'll comfortably be in the top four, which is what I wanted. You all know at the start of the season, I wanted to see a team with some structure some work rate because I think the fans deserve at least that. They didn't have that. So they have a structure. They have a work rate. They have some better players. They get decent results. I mean, I'm, I'm to be honest, this is me absolutely delighted with what I'm seeing from Manchester United. And the thing that I think will ruin it is a sense of disappointment that we haven't got close to the title, we haven't won the title. So I'm trying to keep my mindset. It's all right, you won't have any sit- chat on this podcast, don't as worry, as then. As possible. No. I, I, think I think they'll finish top four. Yeah. Hopefully they'll win a cup. I'm I'm, you know, first year of Eric Ten Hog going brilliantly yeah and you touched on there Ten
1: Hag and this kind of developing relationship with Marcus Rashford which I'm finding fascinating I don't know about any of you this kind of little needles that he's given him along the way along the season which does seem to be having a huge effect and impact on this on this player who has been so adored hasn't he basically for, 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 quite rightly for lots of the things he's done off the pitch away from football but equally burst onto the scene local lad etc cetera, etc cetera, gets the number 10 shirt he ne- then o- Ole Gunnar Solskjaer everyone's favourite friend Manager, and now he's got a guy going. Hey, I think he'd be a bit better, mate. Go on. do be a bit better. Scores a goal. Yeah, Don't be lazy, though. Don't be lazy. I, I, I just think it's a fascinating kind of slightly. You could almost imagine Rashford going. I, f- I hate this guy; he's so
2: annoying. But actually, it's it's producing the goods. Yeah, I think I think Ted Harg, obviously second language, was referring more to complacency. Doesn't want Rashford to rest on his laurels, which isn't yet a. A coined phrase in in Flemish,
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, another good result for Manchester United. Uh, finally, Alison, you watched one of your boys, Tim Ream excel. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? He, he is. He's officially. He's on the list. Okay, <laughs> Fulham beating Forest by two goals to nil. Tim Ream. Tim Ream got a nine.
0: Yeah, I gave him nine out of ten because because he did not make a single. Mistake. The only time he went for a header and missed it, the ball went out of place. So he was not meant to have headed it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it, it was imperious and a delight to watch. And More imperious actually, than William? Well, th- th- different sort of impact. I mean, William, uh, honestly, what he's achieved since being written off as A, too old and B, having given up on the game. He is a miracle. I, I, in fact, I would say... Fulham fans have the toughest job when they come to voting for their player of the season. So there's a lot, a hell of a lot of players playing mm. far better than anyone could have anticipated there. And that the outcome was, it was the most enjoyable match to be at. They, Fulham played some very attractive, slick, you know, it was the daredevil stuff at times. They they When they collect the ball, they do clever things with it. They're tricksy. They move the ball with pace. They're intelligent at the back. It It was... Honestly, one of, the, one of the most entertaining games I've been to this season. And I think because it's a crazy, crazy season, so many teams are doing because we weren't expecting. Table does not look as we expected. There are sackings. It's a crazy season. I think it's being overlooked just how remarkable a job Marco Silva has done with Fulham. And I do hope they make the European places because they deserve it. It's, it's astonishing. He's lucky with injuries, but that's, I mean, so what? Can't can't criticise a manager for being fortunate with injuries. And he can more or less name the same team every week. They are one hell of a unit. And I would urge anyone, if you get the chance to watch Fulham, go and watch them.
2: Very good football team at the moment. And Europe beckons? Well, there's a kind of little group of teams that you
3: would never have expected to knocking on the door. And one of them might do. And I think if I was to pick... It probably would be full of them. I agree with Alison there. They're, they're great to watch as well. And they're two fullbacks who are so athletic and dynamic. And william has got a great relationship with, with uh, Anthony Robinson on, on the left there. We've talked about Palina as probably being the signing of the season. And they just look like a great unit, a you know, really well kind of oiled unit. And out of possession as well, they all know, they've got such energy in midf- midfield with Palina and Reed that they, they form like a really solid block. And they spring forward really quickly as well, and and obviously Mitrovic is kind of is the talisman, but he's, he's even he's doing things that people hadn't really expected he would see this season, and it's been they the story of the season, arguably, arguably because yeah. because everyone would have put them, I me included, put them in a, in the relegations at the start of the season, and they're
0: yeah, history your... does not have to repeat itself. You know, they had this reputation that they're going to be a classic yo-yo team. They're good, too good for the championship, not good enough for the Premier League, and they're proving it wrong.
2: It's an interesting one, the Premier League, right now. There are teams beginning to get results. The What we've seen in the first half of the season is starting to change. The January transfer window beginning to have an impact on certain teams. Managerial change is obviously having an impact too. And uh, it's difficult to predict what may happen from here on out. But yes, you're right, Fulham. Uh, having an excellent season. It's been a pleasure to speak to you all this morning. Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, Alison Rudd, thank you very much. Thank you all for listening as well. Make sure you pick up uh, the paper today, of course, and read the game. All the best journalism from The Times in terms of what was another hectic weekend. Uh, You can check it out on The Times app as well, so make sure, sure you download that wherever you get... At your apps from we'll be back with you on Thursday the Champions League returns and we have a huge game between Arsenal and Manchester City to reflect on so make sure you're with us for that hit the notification button and you won't miss an episode we'll see you then